0: Disclosures. Thank the world for lawyers. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, aspirationally, boys and girls. Uh, Welcome to the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure. On the line with me, I have...
1: Jeff McClure.
0: uh, Together, we are bald. Together, we are the Personal Wealth Coach and bald.
1: I'm glad you got that straight. Yes,
0: we have to establish... This is full disclosure. You guys need to have... Uh, total knowledge of the fact that there are two bald men with beards talking to you at the moment.
1: This podcast is called The Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything, neither, neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is, and this tape will destruct after it's listened to. You just
0: dated yourself. This tape will destruct. Your podcast tape is about to self-destruct. That's why you can't find the tape in it anymore.
1: It already has self-destructed because it's too old. Right. Uh, Being listened to on a TWA airplane on a company from a TWA doesn't exist anymore either. And uh, the information that we do present in this podcast, we get from sources we think are very reliable, but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else. We just do the best we can.
0: The information that we're providing during this podcast is not considered investment advice. This information is educational because investment advice means that we know exactly who's listening and we can custom tailor all of our advice to them. So, prepare to be educated. Well, welcome to the program, and I bet we want to talk about the market to start the day off. Uh, We've got a lot of stuff to talk about this week. If you would like to join the conversation and ask us some questions, we have email addresses. I know, earth shaking. It's crazy. We actually have email addresses that we can take questions through. The email addresses are jeff at tpwc.com, as in thepersonalwealthcoach.com, or jake, at tpwc.com, or you could do both, Uh, but we're going to hit the market first, we're going to hit it as hard as we can, maybe give it a bruise, uh, and then we'll go on to the next um, of our weighty discussion.
1: Well, the market stayed at 44 Wall Street all week.
0: Didn't move at all, just stayed right there, or if it moved, it only moved with the rotation of the planet.
1: It is cyclical, definitely, and uh, it moves once once a year into this position, and it's there again, and... uh, (coughs) However, the Standard & Poor's 500 stock index dropped 1.48% for the week. And there's some pretty good reasons for it. The collective intellect of the investors, as we say in the newsletter, and traders looked around and said, maybe things in the short term at least aren't quite as rosy as we thought they were. And on Friday, they all collectively said, woo, we've got a problem here. And it dropped 1.48% after wobbling around during most of the week. Um, It closed at 3768 0.25, 0.25, which probably is not significant to a lot of people unless you keep up with the numbers. It's still up about 0.32% for the year to date, and it's up 13% from a year ago. Now, there's a very interesting point here. The We follow another, we follow two, two aspects of the market. One we talk about more, and the other one we talk about less. The primary indicator we use is also the one that's on the news, the Standard & Poor's 500 Stock Index. The problem with that index is it's largely driven by about 10 mainly tech stocks, really big ones that are gross stocks that are, in many cases, priced uh, astronomically high, and that worries us a bit. There's another one called the CRSP Mid-Cap Value Index. Now, why do we go to mid-cap rather than small-cap if we're going to go to the other end of the market? Well, mid-cap is still in the S&P 500 Stock Index. And value is the opposite of growth. And since the index, the the S&P 500, is being dominated by growth, we go look at value, which is the other extreme. It's up about 5% year to date.
0: So in the 16 days of this year, it's up 5%. Yeah.
1: Now, now that is a very significant number. The reason it's significant is because all last year, the value side of the market and the mid-cap side of the market lagged behind the large-cap growth side of the market. And here at the beginning of the year, it's rocketing ahead. I say rocketing. 5% is not rocketing. But the point is that we're seeing a shift in the market out of growth into value, which is a very healthy thing. Normally, that we get this kind of shift only when the market craters. And the market hasn't cratered. It hasn't collapsed. But people are beginning to shift over to a different value. There's a, there's a big shift going on in the whole psyche of the country, and it's showing up in the markets, in essence. Um now, that's interesting that we had a decline on Friday because J.P. Morgan reported a 42% rise in earnings for the fourth quarter of last year. And we got positive earnings reports from Citibank and from um, Wells Fargo and the big banks reported this week. And they were all very, very positive. So, of course, the bank, the market dropped 1.48%. Uh, and the reason it dropped 1.48% is we had a dramatic surge in new unemployment claims We had a fall in retail sales in December. Now, understand, a a fall in retail sales in December, we'll talk about that some more, is weird. Normally, retail sales skyrocket in December as people buy for Christmas, and instead it fell seven-tenths of one percent, which doesn't sound like much until you dig into it and you realize that's backwards from the way things ought to be. And there's something driving that train, and we'll talk about that some more, too. Yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note, marked suggested it agreed with the stock market. It declined about 2.6% to 1.091%. The key, though, on the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is it kept bouncing off the bottom side of 1% for months now. And every time it got up close to 1%, it slid back. Uh, And last week, it finally crossed the 1% mark, and it did not fall below the 1% mark this week, so that's a good sign. Just for background, it's important to understand at a higher interest rate in a low we have a very low inflation environment. And in a low inflation environment, a higher interest rate in the ten year T-bill, uh, T bill uh not T bill, ten year t- treasury note yield indicates that the people who are buying bonds anticipate more demand for loans in the future they anticipate more economic activity in the future in the ne- in the next ten years than we're having now. Good sign. And the thirty year note rose even further. Uh, it's closing in on two percent. Wait, I don't believe that there's a thirty-year note, but thirty on closing, bond, closing in on, bond, yes, on 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 two percent, which doesn't sound like much compared with what it traditionally yields, but again, longer term, the bond market is saying that they're seeing a lot of optimism longer term, but they're a little bit uncomfortable with the short term, which is basically what the market is saying. Oil did pretty much the same thing. It slipped about 1% from last week's high to $52.18. That's West Texas Intermediate Crude. But it's only 11% below where it was a year ago. That's good. Basically, the markets are suggesting that we're we're looking at a potential short-term rough spot. But longer term, which is where the markets tend to look, somewhere out about six to nine months from now, we will see a resurgence in the economy. And that's what people are buying in the markets.
0: Cool. Um, there's lots of different pieces of news. Consumer price index numbers came out. We've got labor index news. We've got industrial capacity and industrial production. We've got uh, retail sales. We got all this stuff. But in the middle of that, before we get started, we have a question from John, and John says uh, he sent it in a, in a, a copy uh, a picture of an article from the Wall Street Journal that's going into depths about the difficulties of switching supply chains and so on. And his question is, what happened to the 2020 global initiative to reduce dependence on China supply chains? It's still there. Mm-hmm. However, well, there, let, me, let me explain that. It is not something that's going to take place a short period of time. Uh, this, is, this is something I've been talking about a lot this week. If you measure the industrial capacity of China, it's very close to the equivalent of the rest of the world combined. And that's something that's really hard for people to grasp. If we think back to the 1940s, for instance, uh, after Pearl Harbor, when Admiral Yamamoto says, uh, we have woken the sleeping giant. The reason why he said that, and he's got writings about it, is that the industrial capacity of the United States was equivalent to the rest of the world combined. And they just kicked the giant awake. Uh, and Admiral Yamamoto said, this is not a good idea. Uh, he was in charge of, of the strategy and, and was very brilliant, but he woke up the sleeping giant. If we do not find some methodology of automating our manufacturing, we are stuck with China. Because they have the industrial capacity already. We, we have as the United States, have spent a tremendous amount of money on building manufacturing in China. Uh, when, when we outsourced the plants, We made new and top-of-the-line plants at the place we outsourced to. That's China. Uh, I think any executive of any company that's manufacturing in China is very aware of the shifts in politics that have taken place in China recently. It's gotten a lot harder to do business in China because they can afford to make it that way. It's hard to leave China. Uh, The article that John sends in here from the Wall Street Journal has uh, a big chunk on it on, okay, say say you've got a relatively small plant and and you feel like you're capable of moving it to, say, Thailand or even Mexico or even, heaven forbid, back to the United States. What you lose in doing that is your co-location with all the other suppliers for what you're making. Most of the stuff that is made is made with lots of parts that are made at other places, and most of those are made in China, which means that if you're in China, the supply chain to the manufacturer is relatively short. If you're doing it in the United States, you've lengthened your supply chain across the entirety of the Pacific because you've got to wait for computer chips, you've got to wait for upholstery, you've got to wait for all the things. And that's the problem, is that supply chain is not just move the chain, every link in the chain has to move. And just because we have a global initiative that says, hey, everybody, let's move the supply chain, doesn't mean that you just pick it up and move it. There's construction that has to take place. There's debt on construction that's already taken place in China. If you owe money on stuff that you manufactured to, to manufacture more stuff in China, you have a tendency to, to not want to leave it and keep paying on a debt with nothing backing it. Does that make sense? I, I, I think it makes sense to me, but does it make sense to you?
1: Makes sense to me. And what what we had in the United States was a situation where we were kind of sitting on our laurels and assuming that we were going to dominate the world forever. And labor costs went up and we became the investment in in plants and equipment in the United States started falling off because it was frankly a lot cheaper, a lot cheaper and and kind of in, in competitive world to move production to China. And you can't stay in business by having a price, higher price on something than, than your competitors have. I say that to Lamborghini. Well, Lamborghini is certainly not a major car manufacturer. It's true. Niche car manufacturer. And you can stay in the niche business. That's not a problem. But if you're a major, if you're General Motors or if you're uh, Schwinn Bicycles, for example, there's a movie made about that. The reality of, is that Schwinn was making bicycles in the United States, and they were proud they were making bicycles in the United States. But bicycles that looked almost identical to Schwinn bicycles were being made in China for half the cost. And people were in, in Walmart and a lot of other places started selling these bicycles with interesting names on them that weren't Schwinn. And Schwinn was on the way to going out of business until they moved their production to China. There's... And it was very disappointing when they moved their, dis- their production to China. But the, the fact is, China was a cheaper way to produce, and it's a matter of it's a matter of what we, what in, in economics is called communication. <laughs> it's it's called communication everywhere, but we we say the word a lot in economics. No, it, communication is not just sending data back and forth. It's also sending bicycles back and forth and right. car parts. Uh, lines of communication is called, and, and it's logistics communication. And the fact is it's very, very inexpensive to import something across the Pacific Ocean now because of the container ships and the airlines, the, the airplanes that bring them. And if you, if you question that factor, and that's the big factor, then go to the grocery store in the in immediate future and notice the fresh vegetables and the flowers that came from someplace other someplace than the United States. The flowers were flown in, literally flown in. And you look at them and they're relatively inexpensive. That's the problem. Or Or the not problem,
0: so here here's how to look at it. If we do not want to be dependent on China, it is definitely a problem that we're dependent on China. Uh, if we're looking at this and saying we need to diversify our supply chain, we need to spread it out, and we can't let all of the eggs rest in the basket of china they're They're jostling the basket. That's a slow slow change it took two decades of us investing less in our own industrial capacity and more in china's industrial capacity for them to catch up and pass us up and not just pass us up now they're far beyond and it's not just our investment that's doing it anymore now they're investing in it so it, it required our initial investment to make china the industrial powerhouse that it is. It it no longer requires more investment from us for them to maintain that status. They are now lucrative enough in their own right to continue industrial production at the same level and higher into the future. Uh, We can as well, but only through automation. And that's the thing, is that there is the -the off-the-shelf kind of automation concept of we're just going to start a plant in the United States with few people in it, doesn't exist yet. Uh just well, it's starting to. It's starting to. It's not off the shelf. That's the thing. Every one of these things is custom. And at some point, it will be off the shelf. You will be able to just say, I'm going to start a plant in my garage, and it's going to run by itself. But it's not going to be for a couple of decades. Uh, and, and, and unless you're doing it at the ultra expensive method, and then it may be ten years out. So we have a slog ahead of us to get back industrial capacity. I think it's a good goal to have,
1: but it is certainly not going to be a quick quick deal. The Economist has a special issue out right now on that very subject, and I read through it. It's pretty impressive. The what's happening is the combination of the crisis with China and the and the coronavirus. Pandemic have caused a major shift in manufacturing investment in the United States. Right, the investment in manufacturing equipment is up by twenty-five percent or so this year. We do, uh, for I mean for twenty twenty, that mm-hmm. is a truly impressive number when it was declining for years and years. The fact is, we no longer you are the the John's right. We are in a process of delinking ourselves from the China dependency. But like Jake said, it's going to take years, and it's going to take a lot of automation and oh, a lot wow. of money. A lot of people oppose automation. You, you may not, but the people who work in various plants, in order for those plants to stay competitive, they have to automate. And we're going. To, I think we're going to see an automation revolution that'll go on over the next decade, that will be truly impressive. But an awful lot of people won't have jobs anymore because they'll lose them to robots.
0: And, and this is the kind of the biggest thing. If you know that now, how do you prepare for it? And the number one answer to that, it doesn't matter the socio-economic event, the new technology that comes along. Those that own things tend to do better than those that rent things. Those that own the marketplace tend to do better than those that simply consume the marketplace and are employed by the marketplace. This is very hard for a lot of people on the extreme left end of the political spectrum to understand, but ownership is how you remove yourself from poverty. It's just hard to do. So if you know that there's a coming threat, a risk of, hey, automation is going to take a lot of the industrial jobs. It's already been happening. It's not like this is a a wake-up call or something. Everybody should hopefully already be awake to this. So what do you do about it? You could, you could say, I'm going to join a union and we're, we're going to request pay raises and we're all going to go on strike if they lay us off. That just means they move the plant to China. If, on the other hand, you say, I'm going to take what extra pay I have and use it to buy companies that are automating, then you're beginning the process of removing yourself from the employment dependency of working for a company that may be going away and at the same time that you're owning that the other direct form of investment is education figure out what you do want to be doing and I know this is hard to do if you're in an industrial job and you've been there your whole life there aren't a whole lot of people left in that category as a side note it's hard to say I'm going to go retool and retrain and I'm going to invest in the marketplace that is about to lay me off but yeah, I mean, it's common sense to say who does better coming out of a depression, who does better coming out of a recession, somebody who's renting their house and has no ownership or people that have ownership in the country. And that's a, it's an easy answer. Those that own tend to do better. So that's your solution. It's not an easy
1: solution, but it's the beginning of one. Addressing John's question directly in the, in the article that he sent a, a picture of, seventy five percent or seventy percent of companies that were surveyed said they expand they're planning to expand their China footprint over the next two years right There's a reality here uh, even though industrial production was up in the United States this month very nicely,. nine percent for manufacturing um, or as I say this month December. The manu- the managers of the manufacturing entities that responded to that survey said that they're having a lot of difficulty. Finding employees, finding qualified employees, and keeping them at work because they have, when COVID comes along, they have to shut down production and cleanse everything and then quarantine people, and it's being very difficult. In other words, despite the fact our capacity, technically, our capacity utilization is about 70% right now, between 70 and 74%, which is low compared with where we've been in the past. It really isn't. It really, they, the capacity utilization it makes some assumptions about labor that aren't accurate right now. The fact is we don't have enough qualified people to do much more manufacturing. So if a business is going to, in the manufacturing industry is going to expand right now, it either has to invest a lot of money in automation, and I mean a lot of money in automation, build a new plant, or go to China. Yes, that there's some ability to go to India, but it doesn't have the quality. India doesn't have the infrastructure to put together a plant and make it work. Yeah. Free the Chinese.
0: The, the Chinese have, for all their warts and pimples, they have planned this well. Over the last several decades, they laid out an architecture of how and where they would build their manufacturing centers. They're all built around ports. They have really, really big roads between them. Those are both things that are missing greatly in Indian infrastructure. If you go to India and you say, I'm going to start a plant in India, the roads are very difficult to traverse. And if you're moving big equipment, just forget about it. It's not going to happen.
1: And it's it also true in the United States. Our infrastructure system makes it awkward. For example, let me give you let me give you a prime example that you can test out for yourself locally. Colleen could be a major manufacturing center for shipping things to the Gulf, although it's quite a ways from the Gulf, which is the natural direction that roads out of Colleen should lead. But if you if you go down, what is it I fourteen? Used to be one ninety. That's in Colleen. Yeah, one thirty
0: one. I fourteen.
1: Yeah. You go down I-14 and you want to turn right and go to Houston, go to the port of Galveston. You have to get off the highway, go through a stop sign, go through some uh, service roads, and get back on the highway. Now, if you want to turn north or if you want to turn to the east, which is not where the traffic goes, um, then the, there's a big overpass and it runs like very nicely. And that's been that way for a long time. Even the military, which is what the interstate highway system technically was built for by by Eisenhower was he put it in the defense budget to move military assets around in the United States. Well, Fort Hood wants to when it deploys it goes to the port down there at Galveston and deploys from there. You would think that the interstate highway would turn right to the south coming out of Colleen, but it doesn't. and the reason is it used to be 190 and they have to follow the route of 190 in order to get the funding. We have a system that needs to be fixed for our infrastructure.
0: That's one of the big things on the horizon that we have to do. Infrastructure spending is something that since Reagan has been talked about by both Republicans and Democrats. They all seem to agree on it, but we've got no real forward traction. What do I mean by infrastructure spending? I mean similar to what happened in the 1930s and then again in the 1960s. What happened in the 1930s and the 1960s? In the 1930s, we built a much beefed up rail system to move large things across the country. And then in the 1960s, we built a waterway system and, an, and, a, uh, and a highway system that would allow transportation of goods across the country and prevent massive flooding. So our bridges are in peril, our dams are in peril. Because it's now been, lo- <laughs> it, it's been sixty years since these things were put in, and they've had some upkeep, but they haven't been redesigned. They haven't been uh, set up in a way that says how are how will we utilize this in the future when when the uh, different portions of the government in different states that that run the expansion of highway or the or the money that goes into that they measure existing traffic to determine if they should expand they don't say where should the traffic be going like it should be we should have a good uh system of getting stuff down to the gulf so, because that's where we can ship to the rest of the world we don't say where is trade where would trade like the highway system to go? We say, where's the traffic going now? And if that includes getting off on service ways and stopping at stop lines, then we make or at stop signs we make those really nice stop signs, and we make these really nice little things in there. We're not forward looking in our infrastructure planning right now. We are absolutely looking back and saying, uh, this is where the highway is. This is where the traffic patterns are. Let's adjust them slightly. Instead of saying, where should the traffic patterns be? And every effort to move forward on that front has been stopped by either the Republicans or the Democrats. And, and I mean that from one administration to the next. It's just the opposite party that stops them from doing what they were trying to do, what the other party was trying to do the time before.
1: Well, you may remember the Trans-Texas Corridor. Yeah. And it was proposed by Republicans running the state of Texas and it was shot down by conservative Republicans, and it was a firestorm over it. Uh, all that's left of it at this point is 130 that goes around Austin and goes down to San Marcos. The idea was to put a wide corridor with railroad pipelines, uh, the, put the power lines in all in one place, and have a nice wide highway to get the trucks to move smoothly across the state of Texas and move, basically, we needed to move things from the Dallas-Fort Worth area to Houston and down to San Antonio. And it was designed to do that, but it got shot down, and it got shot down by grassroots people who got very angry about the fact that we're putting in a highway, a new highway on new property, and in many cases, they had property that would be bisected by the highway, and they're very, very angry. Um, That's infrastructure. That's the kind of thing we need, and if you don't think we need that, if, you, if somebody was, they were quite forward looking and trying to build that. Right. You get on an I-35 on a given day and try to drive to Austin. You will probably encounter a traffic jam because I-35, despite the fact it's gone to six lanes, basically becomes jammed pretty regularly, not even during rush hour. Uh, admittedly, when we get uh, self-driving cars and they can drive closer together, which will be quite a while before we can get them to do that because we have to get rid of the drivers first. Um, We'll be able to put more cars on those six lanes. But right now, the growth and our ability to move goods and services around are limited by our highways, and we as a people have concluded that we don't want to have new highways. We want to have the old highways.
0: Right, and, and that, is the, that is the big concern, is that nobody likes road construction. Nobody likes to have property taken from them, even at, at market value, by the government without a choice. But if we do not increase our infrastructure, this is—we're now at a point where it's not just slowing down business growth; it may be shrinking businesses. And this—it kind of dovetails nicely. John sent us another question. It's about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. For those of you who don't know who they are, they are the big mortgage giants. They buy up the mortgages from all the different banks that are issuing mortgages to you. If you go and get a mortgage. Uh, it's probably 90% or so of those get bought up by either Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. They were during the great recession, they were, um, gathered up in a conservatorship by the government to say, Hey, these things are going to fail if we don't run them. And they would have, um, and the Trump administration and, other administrations in the past, even the Obama administration, was moving toward reprivatizing Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. There was a lot of progress being made on that front all the way up to the pandemic. So the Trump administration was really pushing to get them privatized. But one of the things in the CARES Act and in the most recent stimulus act that came out with the spending bill was that if your mortgage... Is owned by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, they're not going to foreclose on you if you're missing payments during the pandemic. The only way they can do that is if it's under a government conservatorship. If it's a private enterprise, the government can't do that without compensating them. Uh, Same thing is true with with student loans. If you've got a, a federal student loan, you can stop paying on those loans. Because the government said, hey, during the pandemic, nobody has to pay. We're not even going to charge the interest on the extra payments. You just don't have to pay. But if you have a student loan, that doesn't mean you don't have to pay it. Because there's a lot of private student loans out there. And the government can't go to a private institution and say, you don't, have to, you don't get to get paid. Unless the government pays them instead. They're not willing to do that. So the Trump administration is looking at this and saying, let's get these two organized Organizations privatized. It's not going to happen in the near term. We have to wait till we're done with the pandemic and we're done using them as a piggy bank in order to let the private citizens take over. And now we can go on to other parts of the question.
1: Well, the problem with with Fanny and Freddie is the same problem that was there with the government guaranteed student loans. When you have a private organization that's operating for profit, but the loss is implicitly guaranteed by the government against loss so of the, the bonds that they issue are implicitly guaranteed by the government. You get an imbalance that inefl- inevitably in the past has created a collapse. Yeah. Unless there's intense regulation like there are with banks. The banks have that. And, and they thought about making that better
0: for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. There was an actual move to cause these two organizations to work in competition. Well, how do I know that? Well, because it started as one organization and then Congress mandated a second one to be in competition against them. And then a few lo- years later said they didn't have to compete with each other. So the politicians are wishy-washy on this. The ec- economists say if you put them in, um, you cause them to have good competition with each other as a for purchasing and so on, then we have to be careful about guaranteeing losses. As soon as you put it into into private enterprise where you say, hey, the profits belong to private enterprise but the government's going to eat the losses, that's communism. That's exactly what that is, only it's got this weird like Frankensteinian head of capitalism sewn to the top of it. Uh, So if, if you owned Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, then you potentially lost great deal of money during the great recession Uh, and that's that's the thing is that the owners in this situation are the ones that get hurt the owners of the company are the ones that get hurt here if we reprivatize it and and open it back up to private stock purchases again on the public market we haven't done anything to prevent what caused them to collapse So we're just in for another (laughs) round of it. So what are the pros and cons of having them out there in competition with each other? It gives a market for banks to turn to to get the mortgages off their books and to get cash back into their hands so that they can turn around and make another loan. That causes less uh, concentration of risk at the community level. So it's got some good pieces to it. There's some good pros to having these things out there and privatized. But they're kind of performing their function fairly well as a governmental organization. And believe it or not, there's less corruption. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac executives, and I, rec- I recommend that you look this up. Don't take my word for it. Go and actually go to reputable sources and look at the executives and who they are and who they have been. And what you'll find is that it's a bunch of people that have not been bankers. They've been politicians that have a job after their job in politics is done, they go and work for Fannie and Freddie. And they make very, very nice incomes doing something that they've never done in their life before because somehow they're experts in it.
1: Um, are, are you on board with that as well? well? The key here is it's in the government's best interest that a lot of houses get built and a lot of mortgages get issued. Correct. And why is it in the government's best interest? Because it's really good for employment. One of the biggest multipliers in the economy is the custom house. And when you can guarantee the loan, it makes interest rates lower.
0: And we buy can,
1: the- we, And we
0: can double down on that and say it's not just the multiplier effect of the money and creating money in the market, but also the productivity of the people. If you own a house, you're a lot more productive than if you rent a house. That's purely psychological, but it's real. I'm sorry, I interrupted you and I wanted to throw that
1: on on top. The issue here is that it's in the government. The government embarked on a let's get everybody to buy a house or let's get as many people as possible to buy a house about 60 years ago. And we're still there. Yeah. And to back off from that is to put a lot of people out of work and raise unemployment and lower economic activity in the United States.
0: It is one of the, one of the bigger benefits to being in America that the long-term part of American dream is to own your own house. That is not part of the Chinese dream,
1: just as a side note. The point is that since we have that as a policy, we have to have low interest rates. And if you look at the the number of people who have defaulted over the last couple of decades on home loans, you realize that the they're not exactly the most consistently profitable loan that's out there. With the 2000, 2000, 2007 and 8 collapse in the mortgage market is an example that almost took the whole globe down. But the point is, and the important thing to recognize is that by putting a government guarantee behind those mortgage bonds, the interest rates stay very low and people can buy a lot of houses and they can put a lot of people to work. And And I don't think we're going to change that anytime soon. So, we need to, if we need to, we need a guarantee. Therefore, we have to have the government control of the entity that has the guarantee. If we're going to give a benefit to an entity like a bank, FDIC insurance, the banks get very thoroughly inspected and very thoroughly regulated by the government. If we're going to have Fannie and Freddie go private, which we did, and we got a collapse out of it. We need to have them very, 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 very thoroughly regulated, which we didn't. So that's the conundrum that we got there. And we got a break for commercials.
0: Uh, If you would like to join the conversation, our email addresses in here are jeff at tpwc.com, that is in thepersonalwealthcoach.com, or jake at tpwc.com. Please send us an email. We have a lot to talk about, though. Do you have something pressing right at the beginning, or do we want to jump into things like possible tax cut during the first year of a democrat in office
1: well that's a thing to jump into we got a big spending bill coming up that is going to probably stimulate the economy and keep us from sliding into a second level of recession our second leg of this recession Mm -hmm. uh we hope because the important thing to recognize that the the democrat don't make any assumptions about what the democrats are going to do with control of congress and and uh, president Biden in, in, pre, in place, yeah. And I think, and Jake was talking about this, that they're talking about a, ca- a further tax cut coming out of the Democrats, which is okay. something people are surprised at. They definitely don't want to raise taxes despite the propaganda to the contrary. They want to do anything but raise taxes in the middle of a, of a pandemic. Uh,
0: and this is, what tax are we talking about? Well, in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, just as a side note, this is something we talk about fairly regularly on the program. We've had two major bills passed without any support from the opposite party, and they're always sniped at as soon as the other party takes over. So the first one was the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. No Republicans voted for it. It's been sniped at by Republicans ever since. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Zero Democrat votes in the House, in the Senate. It still got passed. We had this tax cut. It was permanent tax cut for the corporate and temporary tax cut on the personal side. So why are we saying that in the middle of this that the Democrats might be cutting taxes? This seems like the absolute reverse of all mentality of Democrats. Because one of the pieces of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was a direct target at Democrat-run states. So the SALT cap, man, is that a great acronym or not, or, or what? It's the sales and local taxes that are deductible or have been deductible on our taxes for years and years and years. You pay taxes to Texas for sales tax, you, you, tax, you, you pay taxes to Pennsylvania for income or sales or local property taxes, whatever it is, you could turn around and deduct that from your income taxes at the federal level okay well that makes sense so far then we had this big tax cut and in the process a simplification of the way we file taxes and this is not a simplification and people should thoroughly understand that just for a big chunk of people it became easier to file taxes one of the things that happened in that process is they put a cap on how much sales tax from the state or from the local municipality how much property tax how much Income tax from the state, you could deduct on your federal taxes. It was capped at $10,000, which in states like New York, New Jersey, uh, Oregon, um, uh, Washington, California, Mm. Illinois, all all these states have rather high local taxes, well above a $10,000 cap even for your average person. But something else that's true about them is that they are Democrat-run states. So when the, when the Republican Congress cut taxes, they did it in a way that cut taxes for everybody, but also kind of put a little bit of a, of a thumbscrew in on the Democrats. Well, the Democrats see this year as the time to say, all right, let's take that cap away. Let's say, let's raise it or let's take it away completely. Uh, about 52% of the people that would get the benefit from repealing that cap 52% of the benefit would flow to households earning at least a million dollars a year. But it's a Democrat issue because the Republicans voted for it, for it with no Democrats involved. Just like a, a marketplace for insurance that anybody could go to was a Republican idea. But as soon as it was co-opted by the Democrats, no, no Republicans can, can stomach it anymore, even though it was devised by Reagan Uh, Ronald Reagan said, we need to have a marketplace uh, where we have apples to apples, where we're comparing health insurance with each other. Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, came along and said, now this is a Democrat concept. So henceforth and forever, Republicans hate it. Well, in this case, we have a Republican group that limited tax deductions on the wealthy, And the Democrats are already targeting this to remove the tax deductions so that the wealthy can get them again. I find this greatly humorous, but that is likely to be the first tax move of this administration in the next Congress is a tax cut. How's that for crazy? (laughs) If you thought times were crazy enough already, well, now Democrats are talking about cutting spending, I mean, I'm sorry, cutting taxes at the same time that, that Republicans have been completely uncaring about deficit spending. There you go. Here here is our reverse... Man, is this like mirror land where Democrats are cutting taxes and Republicans are saying we've got to spend more money? Um, Either way you look at it, it is strange. Uh, So when what you were just saying a moment ago about don't make assumptions about what you should expect from the Democrats um when we made those assumptions about the republicans when george w bush took over and the republicans had the house and the senate we said all right we're going to get lower taxes and we're going to get a balanced budget instead we got lower taxes and a huge deficit a massive deficit uh when uh, bill clinton came into office we thought oh no free trade's out the window we're going to have higher taxes we did get higher taxes but then they got lowered again and there's no way we'll ever get a balanced budget. And then we did. So there's a counterintuitive nature of politics that people have to be aware of when dealing with the economic portion of it. You can't just look at the party demagoguery and what their platform is. You actually have to look at what benefits them at any given time. And right now, there's a very clear Democrat to uh, benefit to raising the cap on the uh, sales and local taxes, the salt cap. There you go. There was my soap soapbox for a moment.
1: I don't think we need to be too concerned about the Democrats raising taxes this year. This you know, year. I don't, right. don't think it's going to happen. Once the economy gets rolling and gets moving very, very fast, I think there's a possibility, but I think it'll be a couple of years before they even consider doing that. Taxes are going to go up. Yeah, I think that, say that with a great deal of confidence because the existing law raises taxes in three years, 2025, and it's going to happen. Um, and when that happens, it taxes, that's four years, just as a side note, but they, the taxes very well, that could be moved to to a little earlier date, but taxes will go up because the law says they're going to go up. So plan on taxes going up, just not this year. Uh, Let me, let me throw another piece on why
0: we say not this year. Number one, we're coming out of a recession or maybe going back into a recession. We're in tough times. The nominated Secretary of the Treasury is Janet Yellen, who is an academic that I would not have been surprised to have Donald Trump nominate as Secretary of Treasury. She is not a politician. She is a, a, an economist and an academic economist who studies this really, really thoroughly. And what she said when she was on the Fed is the same thing that she'll say, now you don't raise taxes when you're coming out of a recession unless you want the recession to be really long. So that that's where we're getting our pieces here.
1: The other thing is don't be a, don't be susceptible to the fear mongers. There's going to be people who are, just like to say people forecast a market crash after Biden was elected. It didn't happen. The people on the other side forecast a market crash after Trump was elected. It didn't happen. The election of presidents doesn't have a great deal of effect on the stock market. Will there be additional regulation and possibly additional taxes? Yes, but not a lot. These things move around the edges. matter of fact, what we thought as, a business, as business owners, the Obama administration slapped some regulation on hourly wages and the way we pay our employees. We, we prefer to pay them by salary, but they said we couldn't in many cases, and it raised our costs and made it very difficult for us, as it did for a lot of businesses. The interesting thing is that was overturned by the courts. But during the Trump administration, it was reimposed by the secretary of labor during the Trump administration and was even more severe than the one that happened that Obama had proposed. So things really don't change that much from one administration to another. If you think about the fact that if you were if you were subject to regulation, certain things, and the banks were subject. We're running out of time. You're right. Finish up your, your thought, or your mid-sentence. The next hour, we get, we're about out of time.
0: Yeah, next hour it is. Okay, so this hour, if if you'd like to talk to us off the air, because we'll be back next hour, but if you'd like to talk to us off the air, we've got voicemail waiting locally at? 254-947-1111. And you can reach that toll-free if you still have a landline, which is a you're, you're becoming a bit of a dinosaur if you still have a landline, and that is 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. We've got a contact us form on there. You can listen to the radio program going back. We have a new link on there for the the podcasts. Uh, and you can listen to our podcasts on just about every podcast available location, Audible, Spotify, Apple, Google, doesn't matter. We're on them. Um And if you'd like to email us directly, it's jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next hour with more of The Personal Wealth Coach.